It's the world this week. The world this week in partnership with the Daily Beast. The Daily Beast contributor Craig Capitas is among us. How are you? I'm praying that you don't raise the issue of the royal family this evening. The royal family? Harry and Meghan and all of them. Oh. You promised. Okay, that's off the agenda. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Borzu Dargai, international uh, correspondent for The Independent, is with us as well. How are you? I'm pretty good. Thank you Pretty so much. good. Okay. Uh, uh, from Jerusalem, correspondent uh, Iris Mockler uh, joins us. How are things over there? Uh, good. I'm doing Christmas stories, so I'm run off my feet, but everyone else seems well. Uh, it's that time of the year, Iris. Uh, Robert Parsons, chief uh, foreign editor here at France 24, is with us. You're just back from assignment, Rob. Uh, tell, tell us what's in this picture here. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was a picture taken in Zaporizhia. We'd just started editing, and uh, the lights went out. The lights Simple went out. Simple as that, and it happened all the time. You know, two hours on, four hours off, sometimes the other way around. Uh, you just had to keep your batteries charged. Uh, fortunately, ours were, and we were able to finish off the edit, but, it, you know, it's nothing compared with what people are putting through on a daily basis in, in Ukraine. At the right, moment. and putting good out, making good with that miner's lamp uh, on <laughs> our head, we see. Uh, we'll be talking uh, uh, about Ukraine a little bit later on. You can listen, like, subscribe to The World This Week on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other fine streaming services. The House always wins. What applies for casinos also applies for FIFA, ahead of the closing weekend of the World Cup. The unanimous praise of the FIFA Council for this World Cup, for the unique, cohesive power that this World Cup has shown. The thanks to uh, everyone who was involved, to, uh, of course, uh, Qatar, uh, all the volunteers, workforce, all of you, everyone who has contributed to make this World Cup the best. World Cup uh, ever. Borzo the greatest if World I Cup ever. I do say so myself about my own project. I mean, I, I, I think that kind of praise is, doesn't have a lot of value when it's from the person that is uh, supposedly being praised. So I, I think that, um, you know, uh, there has been, uh, uh, it, it has come off uh, fairly smoothly, the World Cup. Um, I think that there is room for criticism of Qatar. Uh, uh, for other uh, aspects of its uh, governance and, and track record on, on rights and so on. On the other hand, we should not go too far in criticizing it. You know, it, it, let's not forget that the last World Cup was held in Russia uh, uh, just a few years after it first invaded Ukraine. And we just, you know, had an Olympic uh, game in, in China. So, you know, I mean, th we, there, there's plenty of authoritarian regimes with which we do business with around the world that... Uh, uh, are not just Qatar. Right, and uh, FIFA certainly had uh, the sporting gods on its side. France's 2-0 win over Morocco Wednesday, setting up a dream <coughs> final for organizers. Kylian Mbappé's Les Bleus against Lionel Messi's Argentina on Paris's Champs-Élysées. Well, it felt like a win-win moment. The lines of the Atlas had uh, beaten the odds to reach the semifinals, and uh, doing a nation and continent proud, as well as all the French who have roots on the other side of the Mediterranean. I want to thank the Moroccan team. They played extremely well. They played not only for Moroccan country, but for all African country. I'm half French, half Senegalese. So first of all, thank you very much for the Moroccan team. Allez les Bleus! Ouais! 
Allez les Bleus, Robert, Robert Parsons. I'm not sure if the English are still smarting from, uh, from the quarterfinals. But the, the, the hey, listen, it doesn't bother me. I'm Scottish, so I wasn't supporting <laughs> them. <laughs> um, the, the, I mean, it is a tale always, uh, this feel-good tale of globalization, isn't it? The fact that the French and the Moroccan fans were celebrating together. Yeah. I mean, look also at where the Moroccan players are come from. Most of them, I think, were born outside of Morocco. Yeah, but you're right. You're absolutely right. I think it, it is a celebration of that to, to a degree. Uh, and they, they served up a remarkable game as well. It was, uh, you know, although the French won and looked pretty comfortable, Morocco didn't look out of their league by any means. Uh, Iris Makler, uh, ahead of the semi-final, you were reporting for us from Ramallah, uh, and uh, we were highlighting the fact that uh, uh, you had Israelis and Palestinians agreeing on the team to support in that case, which was Morocco. What about for the final? For the final, well, um, let's start with Israelis. There are French-born Israelis and Argentinian-born Israelis, and I think they fall pretty easily. You can see where they might go. Um, there are many, many Brazil supporters here, and I think they're going to support Argentina as well. So I'd say if I had to pick that more Israelis will be supporting Argentina. On the Palestinian side, it's kind of the reverse, and it's partly because of Messi. Messi when, uh, came here in 2013, a trip I didn't remember, but the Palestinians do remember, because although he and the other players from Barca went to Hebron, did a clinic for Palestinian footballers, they also went to Jerusalem, to the Western Wall, and the image of Messi praying with a Jewish skullcap on his head, they haven't forgiven him in the Palestinian territories. And what they said to me in Ramallah is, OK, now we're going we're gonna to go for France. It's it's amazing. Uh, these are two marquee players, Lionel Messi and Kylian Mbappé, and they play for the same club, uh, Craig Capitas. Qatar owned Paris Saint-Germain. I know nothing about this sport. <laughs> what I do know is that the unique and cohesive power that the FIFA boss is talking about, you should be thanking the unique and cohesive power of being headquartered in Switzerland, along with the IOC and UEFA because they're protecting the corruption that is endemic in that. But they better wait, because as soon as they get to North America, they better go in with lawyers, because every time one of these organizations does something in the States, which they always say it's the greatest ever, it ends up in court. Look at the number of FIFA executives, people associated with FIFA, now either in jail or going to jail or on an indictment in the United States. Same thing with the IOC scandal back in the late 90s, early 2000s when there were congressional mm. hearings. Let's get this FIFA boss in front of Congress. That'll be fun. <laughs> Not being questioned by sports journalists, please, by real journalists. Oh, well, we have real journalists who cover sports. I'll take a I, 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 haven't, I haven't seen them down there. I see a lot of rah, rah, rah. All right. Well, speaking of Qatar, uh, the EU embroiled in what could be its worst corruption scandal ever, and Doha is... Uh, uh, linked to it, Belgian federal police uh, nabbing 1.5 million euros in cash. Doha denies greasing palms to get lawmakers to approve visa fee travel for its citizens. Four arrests, including one of the European Parliament's 14 vice presidents. Greek Social Democrat Eva Kaili denies all, even though her own father was intercepted with a briefcase uh, full of bills. Uh, that's got the parliament president promising to fast track a full overhaul of ethics rules. 
Make no mistake, the European Parliament, dear colleagues, is under attack. European democracy is under attack. And our way of open, free, democratic societies are under attack. Our panelists took exception to those words, uh, Borzo Daragai, when we, we discussed this the other day, because they said it's not the EU under attack by some nefarious foreign force. They saw it, if I can push the football analogies, as an own goal. I mean, this is a, an old story, politicians taking money. I mean, I'm just shocked at the small amount. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, 1.5 million euros is, is quite a bit of money. But, you know, if, if, when you're talking about Qatar, you're talking about a country that has, uh, you know, tens, hundreds of billions in, in gas and, uh, reserves and, and, and so much money that, that that's really you, you, well, you sold yourself cheap is what I would say. Cash these days captures the imagination. Yeah, but it's just not, it would not be enough. It, that kind of money would not get you a shipment of cocaine past, uh, 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 you know, Antwerp. You would have to pay more for that. And these sure guys enough, basically yeah. Yeah. sold out the, their entire uh, lives and professions uh, for an amount of money that is, you know, not that much. Ten years of their salary, essentially. It's called Qatargate, but is that a fair cop, uh, Craig Capita, since uh, it's possible that uh, it, we don't know yet, but it's possible it could be Moroccan money involved. And a lot of the focus has been on Eva Kaili, this uh, Greek uh, uh, member of the European Parliament who's been stripped of her title as one of the vice presidents mm -hmm. of, the, of the chamber. Uh, but uh, there are also plenty of Italians involved, and there could be more surprises to come. Yeah, I like, I think we should call it sandbox. It seems to be more evocative of, what, of what's going on. Yeah, well, look, what can one say other than the only way to look at a politician is down? And if this doesn't prove that this is how we should be covering these rummies who are in the EU, I don't know. I don't know what does. You know, the corrupt the corruption there has been rampant. And 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 by the way, by the way, this is not a problem as you were saying that started uh, two days ago. This has been going on for decades. So I think we have to ask, since Where's, where's the Brussels press corps? Where have they been in all this over the past 20-some years? Don't tell me they didn't know this kind of stuff was going on. Of course they did. You know it. I know it. We all know it. Why weren't these questions being asked? So, so I put a lot of this responsibility on our profession as well. Come on. All right, so sports journalists and those who cover the Brussels <laughs> beat in the crosshairs of Craig Capitas. He's got a, po a point, you know, but on the other hand, you know, I, I haven't seen very much evidence to see that the European Union is any worse than, say, Congre U.S. Congress, probably, pro probably not even the same league. But, 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 it, but there is the reputational damage, and it's been pointed out that this has otherwise been, this was supposed to be a good... Yeah, well, it, has it was supposed to be a good weekend for the EU. They just well, approved not just a good massive, weekend, a good year. Uh, massive aid from Hungary, Ukraine, yeah. and they they managed yeah. to come together. Yeah, and they they, they they've managed to get uh, put Hungary in the spotlight at last, and make sure that they didn't get that six point three billion euros unless until they started falling into line on rule of law. But you know. It has also been a good year in other respects. You mentioned Ukraine, uh, getting together 18 billion to support Ukraine, withstanding the pressure from Russia, uh, actually moving uh, you know, on issues like gas. You know, Craig is right in the sense that there is corruption in, in the European Union. We know that. It's almost unavoidable. You know, there's going to be corruption. It's a massive organization. You know, about 60,000 bureaucrats all gathered in one city. You know, it's going to be very hard to stop it happening. Whether they can do better, I mean, 
clearly they can. You know, the, 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 not much is known about what sort of second jobs uh, M MEPs are doing, and they're not called to account very often. A lot more could be done to reveal it. And as for the point of the, the small sum of money, I completely agree with you. But maybe there's more to come. Exactly. <laughs> Iris Markler, 1.5 million. Your thoughts? what we know that was what was in the suitcases when i started reading it was 600,000 now it's 1.5 million maybe these are the suitcases that were found in these police raids who's to say there isn't months previous months worth of many more hundreds of thousands or indeed millions of euros that were um i, I think what the, what qatar wanted was to buy influence and it wanted to buy influence because it was worried about how it was perceived because of this World Cup. So this is just one of the ripples that comes out when you... I just heard Seth Blatter, I was thinking about this, um, a month ago, the man who, who organised this and now confesses or concedes that it was a bad idea and that he shouldn't have done it um, and that he's going to be paying a lot for it. You know, that was the end of his career too. Uh, so I think that all of those things together something that was begun uh, in sin, born in sin, continues and the ripples reach the EU. It's, uh, they certainly have. Um, turning our attention, we mentioned Ukraine. It's not been the kind of year that Russia's president had banked on. Vladimir Putin scrapping what had been a holiday season tradition in Moscow, his marathon annual press conference. Here you see him this Friday uh, at work, a Security Council meeting uh, 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 there. Um, uh, the, uh, uh, the press conference, one of those traditions where you saw uh, Rob Parsons, those pro-Kremlin journalists, sometimes wearing attention-seeking garb to, to grab the leader's attention. Is it a big deal or not, the fact that officially now it's not cancelled but postponed? Yeah, I think it's a big deal. You know, it's become such a part of the calendar in, in Russia, you know, over the years. But for him to cancel at the last minute like that uh, makes him look weak. Uh, not clear what it, what it is he's worrying about. You know, maybe he, maybe there, he's become even more paranoid over the last year. We saw that performance with the, that ridiculous long table uh, where he refu refused to engage with, with, with anybody, you know, at less than 50 metres or however long that table was. Maybe he's, he, he's just fri frightened of being in a large company like that. Maybe he's frightened of just a, a question coming through out of the blue, which he couldn't comfortably answer, that he would be put in the spotlight. Whatever the reason, uh, he, he's backed away from it, and he will look weak as a consequence. Borzudar guy? I mean, I, I think that uh, it's definitely not fear of COVID and so on, because when he goes to places like Iran or, or Central Asia and meets with other leaders, you see him palling around in, in you know, very, very close quarters with other uh, authoritarian dictators. So I, I think it's, it's definitely what he said about the, the questions, the worry about questions uh, that might be popped by a brave journalist, uh, 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 someone uh, asking him about the situation with the war, with the draftees. The, uh, uh, you know, there's a, a big threat against Putin from his own far right, uh, from those people who think that he's uh, uh, 
prosecuting the war in Ukraine in a very flawed way, uh, who think that he's not uh, tough enough, that he's too uh, globalist and too uh, not nationalist enough. And I think that that is more likely than not what he's afraid of is someone asking him, why are our young men not being properly uh, equipped to pursue your war in Ukraine? Let me ask, just add one thing. There is a fear, I think, on the the part of the administration in Russia that that they're losing control of the narrative as well. Opinion polls are not very trustworthy in Russia, but such as they are, they're showing uh, that opposition to the war is growing fast. Craig Kapitas, is is that the worry for Vladimir Putin, his right flank? I don't know. You'd have to ask him. (laughs) Look, (laughs) you know, anyone who tells you they know what's going on in Russia or says they don't get drunk on champagne, never believe anything that comes out of their mouth. What we do know for certain is... Only we here in the West are really like, oh, look at this. He's not doing his annual pep rally. Doesn't matter a whit back in this in Russia. It, it matters. You, you, hang on. you say it doesn't matter. But this was for lots of people the only chance to. Yeah, I think it matters. He has, <laughs> Putin has the propaganda machine at Russian television, which over 80 percent of the people of, of Russia rely on for their information, locked up tighter than the proverbial drum. Now, the only people who are going to make a deal about this in the salons are going to be the intelligentsia back in, in Moscow and maybe St. Petersburg. But the unwashed narod, they don't care. Right, but one clip on Telegram going viral, which is also a tool I, that uh, Russians use, would, I, I would don't buy you know, it. damage him. And I, don't, and I think that is probably it, the worry. It doesn't. It, it, the only way Putin can be damaged is if... The military decides to get involved and topple him, because in the well, history, that, that's exactly what I'm but talking it's about. Not, no, no, you're no, not exactly, seeing, yeah. you're not this seeing is exactly what I'm saying. I don't see any indications of it now. I don't see indi- I don't see indications of it in. in There's in very Red much Star, indications in of, of nationalists and far right Russians who are close to the military, people close to uh, Wagner Group. Uh, uh, making grumbles, uh, talking about the bad prosecution of the war. So I think there there are some indications. Wishful thinking. It's still it's still. Wishful I think it would be thinking. worse. Well, actually, you know, I don't think. Yeah, exactly. It's not, <laughs> a, not a question of We're wishful thinking. About, uh, you wouldn't want those guys to be coming in. Actually, worse. But I, I I do think there's a bit of a worry there on their part, Craig. I think you know if if he if if the people around Putin see that he's beginning to slip and he's it's no longer in their interest to have that man in that office. They're going to start thinking about who they're going to put. I, 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 I'm not. Yeah, I'm, not, really I'm, not disagree- I'm not disagreeing with that premise. Yeah, what yeah. I am saying, you know, let's hold the champagne until we see the oh, military no until there's the military leaves the barracks. I'm not even going to hold the vodka. Iris Makler, how's the Kremlinology where you are? The Krem. I attended one of those Putin fests. I remember when I was in Moscow, when Rob was in Moscow, uh, and, you know, they're meaningless in and of themselves, but I think there is a significance to cancelling it at the last minute, not because it means that tomorrow there's going to be a revolution. But if you, I read a lot of the telegram channels, which is the soldiers, the mobilised soldiers in translation, I don't read them in Russian, and they're pretty grim reading um, you know, no uniforms, no medicines left. It reminds me, especially not just around Bakhmut, but it reminds me of World War One. They're digging trenches, they're filled with rain, then with snow, they're wet, they have nowhere to sleep. And extraordinarily to me, they have no commanders. They're just kind of sent out there. And when you read this over and over again, it's quite distressing. And their wives circulate it. 
and they call their wives and they have to go and march for 30 kilometers to get food. Now, you know, it's not that I am, am in favor of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but if you're a mobilized soldier, those are not good conditions. And if that's being reported back in Russia, that's a worry for the Russian leadership. And I can see that because I hear Sovalyov's program as well, you know, the, the daily morning and night um, propaganda channel, and he doesn't like it either. So you even have the propagandists saying something's not quite right. Not that tomorrow there'll be a revolution, but I do think that it's a sign that they're worried about something and they haven't got their act together to fix it. And as you say, uh, Iris, uh, uh, with winter coming scenes now reminiscent of World War One, France 24's team in Donetsk uh, filming uh, Ukrainian troops uh, on Thursday, digging trenches in preparation for the next uh, brutal phase uh, of battle in the East. And uh, Rob Parsons, there have been trenches, of course, since 2014 uh, uh, when, when the war yeah. first began. But now uh, for the eastern Donetsk region, these trenches suddenly are taking on this magnified importance. Yeah, I mean, the, for the Russians in particular, because I think most people would agree that there's no particular strategic significance in, in Bakhmut. Its significance is primarily political. Vladimir Putin has put so much effort, so many lives have been spent, so much artillery has been, has been spent uh, on trying to seize Bakhmut and so far without any success, uh, mm. that he keeps piling more and more more in the hope uh, rather than expectation that something will be achieved. If they take Bakhmut, they still have to go through various layers of Ukraine of Ukrainian defense before they can get anywhere near some of the big the bigger towns in Donetsk. So it's not about that primarily. It's more the political message that Vladimir Putin wants to send to the Russian people that there are successes that Russia is going ultimately going to win this war. Far from the, the, the battlefield, uh, Russia continuing uh, to target civilians. Uh, the second city of Ukraine, uh, Kharkiv, in the dark this Friday. The Kiev metro out of service after the latest overnight strikes targeting uh, critical infrastructure. It's coming at the tail end of a week where France hosted a Rebuilding Ukraine conference in the Daily Beast. Craig Kapitas, you quote a senior U.S. intelligence officer is describing the situation as Groundhog Day in a war zone with Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky playing the role of Bill Murray. Bill Murray, the actor who in the film has to relive the Correct. same day over and over and Correct. over again. Correct. The, the, the military component is quite concerned that people are already scrambling to do deals in a rebuilt Ukraine and money is being spent either directly or on the side to do this when the money should be spent on munitions to win the war. That... Um, Everyone's talking about deals and not enough people are talking about winning the war. There are a number of problems. The biggest, the, the two biggest ones are if anyone, if they start rebuilding, as Macron says, as soon as a place is liberated, we're going to go in and rebuild it. The military is saying, and correctly, that Putin is going to blow it up again. And you're not going to get insurance for that. You're looking at over a trillion dollars in investment. Uh, a couple of Patriot missile batteries aren't going to protect this. The, 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 those Patriot the, missile batteries, which were announced uh, yeah, this week by right. the Pentagon, the first to go to Ukraine. Right, right. The CIA, the, the intelligence guys, the intelligence guys are saying, look, it's all well and good if, to rebuild Ukraine and it's terrible what's happening to them. And yes, we need to bring in the electricity and whatever to help them during the winter. But 
Don't start thinking about rebuilding this place until Putin is taken out of the picture and his pals. That's the whole feeling because they're not going to go away. Iris, Iris Mockler, um, the, the Friday strikes, uh, according, and this is the Ukrainians saying it, uh, something like 73 missiles sent and uh, uh, most of them intercepted, but not all. The Ukrainians who've gotten better at intercepting these missiles, but the view on what are in often cases Iranian-made drones being used. Yes, and I think that's quite, I'm just thinking about the perspective from Israel on those Iranian-made drones. You know that uh, Israel was walking this fine line between um, Moscow, who is sitting in Syria on its northern border, and Ukraine. It's more, it's, you know, perhaps a more natural ally in this circumstance. But I think that that, um, the further, the deeper that Russia and Iran get, the closer they get to each other, the more worried Jerusalem becomes because those drones were actually invented for use here. They see them being used and then factories being built in Russia to to make more of them. And I think that's a big concern for Israel. Is it, it, is it a concern, Iris, or is it good news, you might say, for uh, Israel in that uh, they're getting a chance to study how the enemy's working? Yeah, I don't think they see it as as good news. I don't think they see the palling up between uh, Moscow and Tehran as good news. Uh, And I don't think they see the use of these weapons in Ukraine as good news. No, I don't. And I do know from analysts that I've spoken to, I haven't spoken to politicians, but I do know that there is a concern about that and a feeling that perhaps under, under, you know, below, below the radar, we are seeing more Israeli help for Ukraine than we than they admit officially. Borzadar Gai? Yeah, I mean, I think this puts uh, Israel in a tough position. It's tried to play, you know, the, the kind of Turkey or Saudi game on the Ukraine-Russia war and, and kind of uh, uh, playing both sides, so to speak. Um, and uh, it, it's under pressure. It's been under pressure from the U.S. Uh, to take a more active stance in support of Ukraine. Uh, and now it's, uh, you know, facing this uh, a very real strategic dilemma, this deepening of ties between Tehran and Moscow uh, and, and a, a possible uh, what, what it, the question that Israelis must be asking now is, um, you know, it, it, Tehran is supplying these drones <laughs> to Russia and these possibly missiles as well. What is yeah, Iran <laughs> getting in? In return, yeah. I think that is really the big question, yeah. uh, and and you know what what well what what will it get in terms of expertise, yeah. in terms of technology that it can then transfer to the Levant and use against Israel in any possible war. Uh-huh. I mean, it's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, that that must be what the concern is concern of the Israelis is at the moment. Yeah. What are they getting in return for those rockets? Yeah. So if they go against Russia too much, if they support Ukraine too much, it could mean that Moscow will be even more enthusiastic about supporting <coughs> Iran. That is the dilemma for Israel. Well, uh, Rob, can I ask you a question? Because you've actually, I have not been on the ground there. Mm. You have. I've been covering the banks and the other whole side of this story for 10 months. It seems to me that this is the first righteous war that's gone on since World War II. This is a real, serious, old-fashioned slugfest war. Mm. And it also seems from everyone I've spoken to that a lot of people, the West and NATO, don't really want to go into this as a full-scale war against Russia. 
but that it's building up to that. You're going to have to have the A-10 Warthogs come in and take out these SOBs at some point. What's the feeling on the ground with the Ukrainians about this turning into a full tilt boogie war with NATO involvement at some point, as opposed to the Ukrainians getting patriots and all this other stuff and pats on the back from Macron and fighting the war for them? I mean, first such war in Europe, certainly. Yeah. Not in the world. I mean, there have been several around the world. But... Uh, the feel, I think really the feeling in Ukraine at this moment is they can deal with this by themselves. Really? They, don't, they don't need NATO to come in. What they need is NATO's weapons, right. certainly. They, they certainly want more uh, air defense. They certainly want aircraft. They've been demanding aircraft, calling for aircraft since the beginning mm. of the war. And primarily at the moment, yes. what they really want uh, are tanks. They're really pissed off with the Germans for blocking the supply of uh, tanks through, via, via Switzerland. Uh, uh, you know, that's it. I mean, they just say, look, we can do it. You know, mm-hmm. I was just reading uh, the, the commander of chief Zaluzhny the other day uh, saying, look, we can win this. We know that you know, as commander in chief, I know I can win this war, but I need the equipment. I know I, yeah, I can give you the list of what I need. Uh, the tanks, you know, the, the, the armored personnel carriers, uh, the rocket systems, uh, the aircraft. I don't need your men. We've got at least 700,000 men under arms. Uh, you know, I'm more in reserve. Give us the weapons. That's and you what get that saying. feeling on the ground as well that they could that they could take Putin out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, no, 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 they're not going to take Putin out by themselves, but they can have have an effect on on Russian politics by achieving okay. military progress on the ground. Robert Parsons, uh, when you were in uh, the city of Nikopol, that's near. Uh, the Moscow-controlled Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Yeah. The anger was definitely palpable. Uh, let's take a listen. The thoughts of Russians as our brothers and sisters. I never imagined something like this could happen. How could Russia commit such an abomination? I can't understand them, and I will never forgive them for all the terrible things they have done. And this is in the Russian-speaking east of Ukraine that she's talking. Russian-speaking woman. She was talking to me in in Russian through that window there. Uh, Her hands trembling from Parkinson's disease, which she told me she'd had for 20 years. She's 83. Uh, She couldn't leave. I asked her why she didn't leave. And she said she couldn't because, you know, she was just not physically fit enough to do it, and she didn't really have anywhere to go to. She was stuck there. Uh, and she would say, look, you know, what on earth is this all about? You know, what, why? You know, why on earth are they doing this? What is all this rubbish they've told us about brotherhood in the past? You know, where is this brotherhood now? You know, what are you doing this for? You know, and then this is an abomination, and I will never forgive them for it. It was one of the, the, the strongest uh, sort of witness moments I got when I, when, uh, I was there this time around. Uh, Iris Makler, you're about to have a new government in Israel, and we remember Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, who uh, in a previous incarnation as uh, prime minister, uh, attending um, uh, the uh, May 9th celebrations in Moscow. What kind of rapport will he have with Vladimir Putin? That's an excellent question. Um, He does have a rapport with Vladimir Putin. They're both very, they're long-lived leaders. They met each other a lot. Uh, It was a change, a break in Russian policy, the friendship towards Israel. 
But I think now that's definitely cooling. Uh, and what um, Netanyahu promises is that he can restore it. He blames the previous, that short-lived previous government, as he blames them for many, many things, uh, for the, for the, the decline in the relationship. But I think it's a reality. It's a a geopolitical reality, the decline in the relationship. Uh, and I'm not sure that as good as his relationship with Putin is, his personal relationship, that that what we're seeing on the ground, what we're seeing with Iran, you know, what benefits Iran will demand from Russia in return for its cooperation and whether those benefits will be aimed against Israel, that all of those things, I think, will make it very hard for him to have the same the same glowing relationship he had earlier. All right. So uh, Vladimir Putin uh, to uh, no longer uh, someone you want to have your picture taken with, except uh, is Russia still winning hearts and minds in Africa? The head of Putin's private army calling for France to be deemed a state sponsor of terror, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who heads the mercenaries of Wagner, blaming Paris for a letter bomb that seriously injured the head of the of Russia House, uh, which... Uh, uh, its branch in the capital of the Central African Republic. Uh, the French staunchly deny. There's no proof of a link to the French. The former colonial power in Bangui, which this Thursday pulled out its last troops uh, from there. And Borzu Daragahi, uh, there is, you know, again, we, we talked about the World Cup and its perception uh, sitting here in Europe, how, how it could be different than the rest of the world. The, the perception of this war 10 months in, uh, outside of, uh, of Europe, is it evolving? Is it changing? No, not really. And I think that, you know, there, that, uh, in some respects, the West has, uh, you know, no, no one else but itself to blame. For that, you know, uh, does anyone even know that there's a, you know, a horrific war in the north of Ethiopia, in the Tigray region, where, you know, it's been described as the worst humanitarian Biden administration this week hosting this big U.S.-Africa summit? Yes, <laughs> but not really addressing this issue. It's not something that we talk about for 30 minutes on TV. So I, I, I get where people in Africa and Latin America are coming from. Yeah. And Congo uh, it, as well. Right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, it, it, we, we, we're, we're supposed to get all, uh, you know, teary-eyed about your wars, but, you know, our... People in the global south are being torn apart in wars, often with your weapons and your sponsors. And, you know, no, no one cares about that. So why should we care about you? So I, I, I understand the sentiment, even if I don't necessarily agree with it. The rising star of Turkey's opposition just got a lot of free publicity. He also got a ban from politics and a two-year, seven-month jail sentence. Istanbul's mayor appealing. Thousands turning out Thursday in support of 52-year-old Ekrem Imamulu, who uh, uh, points uh, to the timing uh, of uh, his conviction uh, because he'd called the Supreme Electoral <coughs> Council idiots uh, six months ahead of elections where President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has to overcome skyrocketing inflation and incumbent fatigue. The ruling party ordered a certain verdict to be issued by the court. They wanted to imprison me. Furthermore, when they realized that the original judge would not give the decision they wanted, they exiled him and brought in another judge to decide. So, uh, Ekrem Imamolu uh, Borzo Dargahi, he 
uh, he was almost prevented from becoming mayor of Istanbul. They reran the election, and this time he won by a landslide. Uh, will he? Will lightning strike twice in his favor uh, in this case? I mean, it remains to be seen. And, uh, you know, the, the, the sentence against him, the ban on politics, uh, the prison sentence, which likely won't be carried out for technical reasons, um, they still have to be uh, confirmed on appeal. And, you know, until that appeal is confirmed, the ban on politics will not take hold. Um, but, you know, I mean, this is just, uh, it shows uh, on the one hand the the uh, extreme uh, uh, twisting of Turkish institutions under Recep Tayyip Erdogan. And on the other hand, I think it, 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 it you know, I, I, I've met Imam Oglu a few times. I've seen him speak. And, you know, we're maybe as little as four months before an election. It could happen as early as March. And, you know, these guys, these opposition guys just do not have their act together and, you know, finally, I see some passion in this video that we're seeing, but they've been bickering among themselves and arguing about who gets to be the, uh, the presidential, presidential candidate from among the opposition figures and so on. And they've been not really going out and knocking on doors and campaigning or uh, trying to recruit people into their opposition fold. So, it, you know, they, they've not been a very effective opposition. And, you know, ironically... Why is that? I think there's a bunch of uh, institutional reasons. I think there's a, it's, it's a complicated uh, story. I think that the, the Turkish civil institutions are kind of lacking and lack development. And, you know, the, the, the Imam Oglu, ironically, is actually a kind of natural politician. He's a, you know, he can be a decent speaker. People like him. Uh, but there's a lot of uh, political figures in the, <coughs> in the Turkish orbit who are just not <coughs> inspiring, unlike Erdogan, who's good on the stump and a pretty talented, tactical politician. Craig Kapitas. Oh, Tayyip is the perfect uh, uh, tyrant. He's really smart. He's really wonderful. And he's really old like all of these other guys. He controls, he, he, he controls everything. And, and, and he's been... You know, he used to be the great Democrat. So that makes him unstoppable if he controls everything. Oh, of course everything. he's unstoppable. I mean, I, the, the, the question is, when the elections come, is he going to allow anyone else except himself to win the election? I think the answer to that, and I'd be happy to bet a, uh, you know, a simit or whatever you'd like right now, that uh, he's, not, he's, not going to allow, he's not going to allow that to happen. You know, he, he starts, he says, well, we're going, you remember, he's a member of NATO, don't you know? You know, lest, lest we forget, and he's talking about sending Turkish missiles into Athens. And he's also attached to the hip, to Putin's hip. Let's not forget this. You know, he need, Putin needs Erdogan and Tayyip needs old Putin for energy, for building uh, nuclear reactors, for using Turkey as a kind of hole in the wall for Russian oligarchs who are going to hide out. And... and the, the thing you hear is, well, the economy is just collapsing, which it is and has been for quite some time. But you know, Francois, it really takes a long time for a nation state to collapse. Look at Iran. You know, they, they create their own little ecosystem. They did it in North Korea. They've done it in Iran. And that's what you, and they've done it in Russia. And now you're seeing that same kind of, you know, a totalitarian ecosystem being created in Turkey, and it's really hard to crack. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure it takes a collapse of the Turkish economy to get rid of uh, Erdogan. Yeah. 
I absolutely agree with you. He's a very talented politician. It'd be very hard to remove, and he's ruthless. Uh, but he has, if I remember rightly, lost control uh, of major cities through, through, through not just Istanbul, but other cities, Ankara, Bursa as well, right, he lost yeah. control of. You know, it shows he's, he, he can lose. Uh, I, I think it's quite possible this time if the opposition get their act together. Uh, and maybe there haven't been many he's signs a, so he's far. He's a smart, tactical <laughs> politician. He makes very big mistakes on the strategic and long-term front. Uh, and I, we have to note also, polls consistently show him losing. And many of the things that he's doing, uh, including perhaps, uh, and we're not sure exactly what so happened. Do, so does it matter who the, who the CHP puts up? Can they put up a bologna sandwich and it wins? That's what some people speculate, but I, I'm not sure. You know, I mean, <laughs> no, the, some old, people have said All the that. opposition guys are really old. Uh, you know, one of the problems in Turkey for years... Not Imam Oglu. Imam Oglu. Well, younger yeah. than me. Well, yeah, yeah. well he's, he's younger, <laughs> but, but it, one of the problems is, has been the, uh, the flight of young Turks because they just didn't want to stick around, you know, and get... Oh, but they'll vote. Even those ones that yeah, are living in Europe, well, they will but, trust yeah, me, the Turkish... It's not, it's not if they vote, it's who counts the votes. And, and, and I, I, it, I just do not at this point see Erdogan allowing any opposition to beat him. Mm-hmm. I, and you're right about the three major cities, you know, always going, you know, not voting for Erdogan. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I just don't see it. He's a, mm-hmm. he's a canny old SOB, that guy, you know? Robert Parsons, this uh, while this is happening, uh, the triangulation, but as, uh, as Craig was describing it, between uh, NATO on the one side and Russia on the other and Erdogan uh, in the middle. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't see them as being attached to the hip, like Craig said, but they certainly, you know, Erdogan is playing a, a long game with, with uh, Putin, you know, it, it, if he can ditch Putin, he'd be very happy to do so. Yeah, he 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 needs Putin to a degree, obviously in in uh, Syria at the moment, uh, and he needs the the energy supply from from Russia as well. But he's watching what's happening in Ukraine too. He sees that things are not going well for Putin in, in Russia. He's a part of NATO. Uh, he sees that economically, Turkey is much more attached uh, to the West than it is to to, to, uh, to Russia. So I think long term, his interests lie not with Russia, uh, but. But, but with the West. Borzadar it's a cold guy. winter, and, uh, you know, uh, Erdogan has a big election. Because it gets cold coming. in Turkey in winter. Er- 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 Erdogan yeah. has a big election coming up. Uh, that, that cheap energy from Russia is a, is a, you know, quick fix for that. You know, he could very well say, hey, uh, Germany and France, you don't have elections to worry about coming up this year. And I do. Yeah. So I have to, you know, have my, I have to cut some kind of deal with uh, this guy. A, mm. he's my neighbor. B, we control uh, the Black Sea together, pretty much, uh, and 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 see. I need this gas, and I I, I see where he's coming from. Meanwhile, as everyone knows, uh, uh, militarily, uh, uh, spiritually, almost, uh, Turkey supports Ukraine in this war. It supports Ukraine, the the Turkish people. Well, not not just the Turkish people, but the Turkish yeah. defense industry yeah, the in drones, terms of the so drones that are being drones. Yeah, and, and other yeah. uh, weapons and, and defense cooperation agreements and so on. So, so Iris Marco, yeah. this yeah. The, what what Borzu is describing sounds a lot like like uh, Turkey's position is is like Israel's, uh, 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 playing a nice with both sides, but beneath the surface, when you scratch the veneer public opinion squarely going one way yeah i can see that just i I was just thinking back through the drones which i hadn't you know i hadn't focused on that enough 
Yes. So it is a complicated, I guess it's complicated for many countries in the world. You know, you look at the changes in Europe, not just this week, um, and the changes in in gas policy that is, that is going to be a result of this war with Ukraine further down the line. Uh, and you can see that, that many countries, um, the closer they are to Russia, have very complex relations with them. And Israel now regards itself as close to Russia because of Russia's presence in Syria. So any, anybody who shares a border of any kind with Russia is in a complicated position. And that applies to um, Israel by proxy, to Iran and to Turkey. And it, it certainly has been uh, uh, an eventful week uh, in other former uh, uh, Soviet states uh, like Armenia and Azerbaijan. So much more uh, to talk about uh, on this. Uh, Iris Mockler, thank you so much for being uh, with us uh, from uh, Jerusalem. I want to thank uh, Craig Kapitas, Borzu Dargahi, Robert Parsons. Join us next week for The World This Year, our uh, retrospective of all that's happened in 2022. Bye for now.